Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It was pouring rain when the headliner band took the stage at the Chicago stop of the 1997 Vans Warped Tour. But nothing could slow down the group's lead singer. Backed up by a lively horn section, Dickie Barrett roared through the band's pumped-up hits with his usual frenetic pace and gravelly voice. The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were riding the wave of a ska revival that had young people combing thrift stores for vintage clothes and skanking along to the dozens of ska-influenced bands that burst onto the scene. And ska wasn't the only retro music with horns making a comeback at the time. There was also the big band sound of retro swing. Life was good in the 90s, and the music reflected it. The fun, upbeat sounds of ska and swing were the perfect fit for the time. Grab your pork pie hats and dancing shoes, because on this episode, we're looking back at the rise of 90s ska and swing. Third Wave Ska hit North America with full force in 1997. But as the name would suggest, ska music had been around long before kids in the U.S. and Canada began skanking to Rancid and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. So before we get into third wave, let's take a look back at the first and second waves. Ska music was born in the late 1950s in Jamaica and is actually the grandfather to reggae music. Ken Partridge is the author of Hell of a Hat, a book about the rise of 90s ska and swing. He says first wave ska combined the Caribbean sounds of mento and calypso with American R&B music. So there's all kinds of stories about, um, you know, people in uh, Jamaica would, would be picking up, you know, radio signals out of New Orleans and stuff. And they'd hear fast domino records and things like that. Um, and, you know, the thing that really makes ska a uh, unique, you know, form of music, I would say, is kind of the emphasis on the offbeat, you know, sort of almost like an inversion of like what you typically hear in, you know, music where you just, you know, the music has this kind of push and pull to it because, you know, the guitar and the horns and the piano are kind of hitting like in between the beats of a song, which is actually there in the music of Fats Domino. And it, you know, goes back even further than that, I'm sure. But like, that's what the uh, Jamaican people really latched onto and then kind of added their own elements to it. It was a special time in Jamaica. The small country was just gaining its independence following more than 300 years of British rule. The uniquely Jamaican take on rhythm and blues with quick, jumpy rhythms from snappy guitars and piano made it perfect for dancing. So it's kind of associated with this with this kind of celebratory time in uh, Jamaica. And the music that, you know, came out in the early 60s has a lot of horns and it's very upbeat, up-tempo music. And I think it just kind of like reflected the kind of national mood in Jamaica. The name ska is difficult to trace, but some early ska musicians said it came from the upbeat, chopped sound of the electric guitars. Around the time ska was coming on the scene in Jamaica, the island nation was gripped by high unemployment and poverty. This gave birth to the country's first youth culture movement, as unemployed streetwise young men came in droves to the capital city of Kingston looking for work. Dressed in sharp suits, pork pie hats, and shiny shoes, they became known as rude boys or rudies. 
The subculture revolved around the emerging sounds of ska and the local dance halls where Rudy's were often hired as bouncers. One of the founding and most well-known bands of the early Jamaican ska music scene was the instrumental group The Scatolites. Some of its members were originally studio musicians who played on tracks for upcoming singers like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. Then in 1963, they decided to form their own band and recorded several signature tracks, including this one called Guns of Navarone. The original incarnation of the Scatolites didn't last long. They disbanded in 1965 after just 14 months when the group's trombone player, Don Drummond, killed his girlfriend. He was committed to a psychiatric hospital where he died four years later. But in that short time, the Scatolites left an enduring mark on the Jamaican music scene, setting the stage for the slower-paced rock steady and eventually reggae. Ska's second wave occurred in the UK beginning in the 1970s. As Jamaicans emigrated to Britain, they brought with them the upbeat sounds of ska, where it was embraced by some of the country's disenfranchised youth in working-class towns plagued by high unemployment and ongoing racial tensions. White punks and the kids of Caribbean immigrants took the first wave ska and made it their own. They blended it with punk and new wave and added lyrical themes of unity, street culture, tolerance, and racial integration. Many bands had multiracial lineups, and they often wore black and white checkered clothing as a sign of racial integration. As for the music, second wave ska still emphasized the offbeat and maintained R&B tempos. But the addition of punk-influenced chords and tempo gave it a tighter and edgier sound. the specials, who Ken Partridge says led the UK ska revival by starting their own record label called Two-Tone Records. They were a mixed-race band out of uh, Coventry, England, and they just kind of set the template for the whole Two-Tone movement. This was, you know, white and black kids uh, playing together. They were kind of going back to this kind of older Jamaican sound because, you know, ska morphed into uh, Rocksteady and then eventually into uh, reggae music. You know, the uh, Two-Tone kids really, you know, really kind of latched onto it and you know, played it with more of a, of a kind of punk sensibility. I guess you could say so. It's bands like The Specials and uh, Madness and, um, you know, The Beat. The songs were, you know, very political because they were kind of like responding to all this uh, far-right stuff that was happening in the UK at the time. And also just, it was, you know, kind of a generally, it was, it was a bad time in the UK anyway. There was a lot of like strikes and unemployment. And yeah, Two-Tone was a pretty, was, you know, for as upbeat as it was, it was a pretty fiercely political music as well. You might remember from the episode we did about Nelson Mandela that Jerry Dammers, the founder of The Specials, went on to write a song that helped catapult Mandela's name to world recognition and raise awareness about his plight. The 1984 song called Free Nelson Mandela was a global hit, and it became an anti-apartheid anthem that was bravely sung by Black South Africans at football matches as an act of defiance. 
Like the pork pie hats and two-tone tonic suits, socially aware political songs were a hallmark of two-tone ska. But this changed by the time third wave ska finally made its way across the ocean to North America. Like its predecessor, the ska of the 90s had big horns, black suits, and frantic dancing. But it mostly lost the political focus. Instead, it was lighthearted and at times a little bit goofy, which according to Ken Partridge, wasn't for everyone. You know, we just come out of this period of, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and grunge and this really heavy music. And then to have these guys with, you know, like Hawaiian shirts and uh, trombones, uh, you know, dancing around, singing about nothing in particular. Uh, uh, some people loved it, but some people didn't, didn't take too kindly to it, I think. <laughs> but there were lots of people who embraced third wave ska, which started with fairly small underground scenes in New York, L.A. and San Francisco, Featuring bands like Fishbone, The Untouchables, The Toasters, The Dancehall Crashers, and Operation Ivy. Ken says those bands lit the torch and passed it to the artist who would eventually take ska music mainstream. I think the reason why it actually finally did break in the you know later half of the uh, 90s was, you know, things kind of changed in the country. Um, like if you look back to the early 90s when you had grunge happening, you know, we had the Gulf War, we had the, we had the L.A. riots, we had... Um, a, a recession, um, you know, by 95, 96, you've got Clinton in the White House, you know, the economy's doing great. Uh, we had really no, you know, major conflicts with, a, with a foreign countries. It, it was it was sort of a, like, this, you know, tiny blip of uh, peace and prosperity right before 9-11 happened that I think kind of allowed uh, Scott to really flourish for a little while there. The high-water mark happened in 1997, during a period often referred to as the Summer of Ska. The soundtrack for that summer was provided by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. By the time the Boss Tones released the impression that I get in 1997, the band had been together already for 13 years forming in their hometown of Boston back in 1984. As teenagers, several members of the Bostones were huge fans of the English Beat and other two-tone ska bands. And they later told the media that they proudly became Boston's first rude boys. The Bostones, with their mix of Jamaican rhythms, hardcore punk, and sometimes even heavy metal, Americanized ska music. And they set the tone for its fashion, too. You know, the Bostones, uh, you know, when they first started, wore a lot of plaid back in the early 90s. That was sort of their their sort of contribution to, to, to ska fashion. And then by the time they kind of broke through with, uh, let's face it, um, they kind of switched to like more traditional, you know, black uh, suits. The Bostones were so committed to the ska lifestyle, they even had a guy in the band whose only job was dancing. Or should I say skanking? For those not in the know, skanking is the name of the dance associated with ska. I'm going to let Ken Partridge describe it for you. Probably to outsiders, looks like you're just running in place, more or less. <laughs> you're sort of, uh, you know, moving your arms as though you're running or, you know, maybe cross-country skiing kind of a thing. <laughs> it's, it's very, um, yeah, it's very um, aerobic. Like, I mean, if you went to shows back in the day wearing a full, you know, suit, and, and tie, you would um, typically leave a show totally uh, soaked in sweat and, uh, you know, smelling awful. Um, but that was that was part of the fun. 
Okay, let's get back to the Boston's. They released a couple of indie albums in the early 90s that were good enough to land them a spot in a Converse TV ad with the Boston Celtics. And eventually they scored a major record deal with Mercury Records. In the summer of 1995, they joined the Lollapalooza lineup, but took the stage so early in the day to perform their single Hell of a Hat that there were very few people in the audience. Boston singer Dickie Barrett was starting to feel like the band had grown as much as it could. He worried that mainstream success was out of reach for them. Then their label, Mercury Records, got a new president, Danny Goldberg. Nirvana's former manager, Danny Goldberg, knew a thing or two about taking an underground band into the limelight. He told Barrett he needed to stop being afraid to write a hit song and convinced him that the band could make songs that appealed to a lot of people without compromising who they were and what they stood for. And Goldberg was right. When the Boston's released their next album, Let's Face It, in 1997, it reached number 27 on the Billboard 200 and went platinum with songs about drug addiction, alcoholism, and the numbing effects of mass media. It also had this breakthrough hit. The impression that I get about the ease of life in the 90s compared to other eras like the 60s when young people were being drafted to go to Vietnam hit number one on the modern rock tracks chart and number 17 on the adult top 40. Meanwhile, across the country in California, two of the biggest ska bands of the 90s were gaining traction. No Doubt and Sublime were two very different bands, but they had one thing in common. They had a massive impact on music and pop culture and helped pave the way for other 90s ska bands that followed in their footsteps. So let's take a look at both of these groups. We'll start off with Sublime. Sublime was fronted by singer and guitarist Brad Noel and was a fusion of reggae and rock with a beach bum mentality. They formed in 1988 in Long Beach, California, which had a thriving underground art and music scene that saw punk, surf, and hip-hop cultures clash and blend freely. According to Ken Partridge, California as a whole was an incubator for ska bands, starting with the legendary group Fishbone. Yeah, they kind of laid the groundwork for, you know, by the end of the 80s, early 90s, you had a lot of California bands. And I think part of it was just that you know, ska is kind of naturally, you know, beachy music. It's good for you know, surfing and skating, and it, it, it kind of fits into those subcultures pretty well. And obviously California was you know, kind of an epicenter for, you know, surfing and uh, skating culture. By 1990, a couple of years after forming, Sublime was popular enough to play house parties in beach towns up and down the coast from San Diego to Santa Barbara. In pictures from this time, Noel and his bandmates Eric Wilson and Bud Gow look like the stereotypical SoCal surf rats with lots of tats, wraparound shades, and Hawaiian shirts. After recording several DIY cassettes and selling them at shows, Sublime went into a Long Beach studio in 1992 to record 40 Ounces to Freedom. 
The band released the album on their own record label called Skunk, and it did pretty well for an indie, just on a word-of-mouth basis. But when it came time to go back into the studio to record their next album, singer Brad Noel was deep into a heroin addiction. Rolling Stone magazine said in 1997 that most of the album, called Robin the Hood, was recorded in a Long Beach crack house, and Noel's addiction was way out of control. And he didn't try to hide it. The album's lyrics are all about his heroin abuse. In the song Pool Shark, he sings, Now I've got the needle, I can shake but I can't breathe, take it away and I want more, one day I'm gonna lose the war. Despite Noel's issues with heroin, Sublime caught the eye of a major record label and in 1994 signed with MCA. It was a big deal and Noel didn't want to blow the band's chance at stardom. So he went into rehab and stayed clean for a while. Then in February 1996, when the band traveled to Austin, Texas to begin recording their next album, Noel descended into addiction again. After recording the album, Noel married his girlfriend, who he had a baby with 11 months earlier. But then, on May 25, 1996, Brad Noel died from a heroin overdose in a San Francisco hotel room. He was 28 years old. Noel's death didn't get much press. In fact, plenty of Sublime fans didn't even know that Noel was gone when Sublime's album was released two months later. The self-titled album went on to become the breakthrough record that Noel always dreamed of. It was packed with hit songs, including Santeria, Doin' Time, Wrong Way, and of course, this one. What I Got went to number one on the modern rock chart, and the album sold more than 7 million copies. Billboard called the album the spirit of summertime vibin', with big sing-along hooks, beach party-ready acoustic licks, furious punk guitar, and the grooving rhythms of Gao and Wilson. But today, you can't talk about Sublime without acknowledging some of their problematic lyrics and songs. Take, for example, the song Date Rape, which includes the line, If it wasn't for date rape, I'd never get laid. Ken Partridge admits Noel had flaws, but because of his early death, the singer didn't get a chance to redeem himself like other performers have. Yeah, the Beastie Boys were a sort of similar in that when they came out, they were kind of dismissed as these, you know, drunken louts who had these kind of, you know, misogynistic lyrics and, and things. And, but they were around for a long time and they, they became, you know, older men and they became uh, more enlightened. And uh, Brad never got that chance from, from Sublime. And uh, I don't know, I, I would hate to be judged on, on things that I wrote when I was 22, you know, for the rest of my life. And But, you know, it's like you say, things get kind of frozen in time. And if you, you know, die young like he did too, especially, you just sort of leave behind this kind of limited body of work. And, I, you know, so yeah, songs like Date Rape will always be part of his legacy, you know, even if... You know, by all accounts, he had kind of grown to you know, sort of uh, dislike that song a bit. I think by the end, I think he had, I think the band had kind of um, distanced uh, themselves from, from date rape a little bit. There's also the matter of cultural appropriation, not just for Sublime, but for a lot of bands that took ska and made it their own in both the second and third waves. At best, it was an era of mostly white bands playing Jamaican-influenced music to mostly white audiences. At worst, 
It was singers like Sublime's Brad Noel singing in what sounds like a Jamaican accent. But cultural appropriation in music is a tricky thing. Almost all music is borrowed from somewhere else. And when it's done right, you could argue it's a cultural exchange rather than appropriation. No Doubt was the other really notable band from the West Coast. They were one of the few multiracial bands in the 90s ska movement. It was formed in 1986 in Orange County, California, by founding members Eric Stefani, his kid sister Gwen, and their friend John Spence, who all worked together at Dairy Queen. They were all big fans of two-tone ska, bands like Madness, The Specials, English Beat, and The Selector. Together, they hatched a plan to form their own band. John was the singer, Gwen mostly on backup vocals, and Eric taught himself to play the piano. A few friends filled out the other positions in the band, including a horn section. And then in 1987, UK-born Tony Cannell joined No Doubt on bass. He also became Gwen's boyfriend, which was kept secret from the rest of the group. Soon, No Doubt, with their typical ska sound that included big horns and hiccuping guitars, was playing gigs around Orange County, making a name for themselves and eventually opening for Fishbone. Then on December 21st, 1987, days before No Doubt was set to play at the Roxy in LA at an industry showcase, which they hoped would be their breakthrough performance, the band was struck by tragedy. John Spence, No Doubt's dynamic singer, known for his onstage backflips, died by suicide. He was 18 years old. Initially, the band thought about giving up, but in the end, decided their friend would have wanted them to carry on. In 1988, with Gwen now on lead vocals, they recorded a song called Everything's Wrong, which appeared on a ska compilation called Ska Face. Have a listen. No Doubt went on to release a couple of indie albums and became a regional favorite, which earned them a major label deal with Interscope Records in 1991. But after adding heavy metal-loving guitar player Tom Dumont and drummer Adrian Young, the band slowly began to drift away from ska. They were becoming a punky, funky pop rock band with ska tendencies. By 1994, while recording what would become the band's breakthrough album, Tragic Kingdom, Eric Stefani grew fed up with the direction the band was going in. He quit the band and pursued his other passion, becoming an animator on The Simpsons. Eric's departure opened the door for his sister Gwen to start writing more songs. And right around this time, Tony Cannell dumped Gwen after a seven-year relationship. So she had lots to write about. The result was the 1995 album packed with hits, Tragic Kingdom. It had the singles Just a Girl, Spiderwebs, and Don't Speak, and went on to be the best-selling rock album of 1996, hitting number one on the Billboard 200 by December 96. To help put it in perspective, it sold just as many copies as Nirvana's breakthrough album Nevermind. The other California band I should mention is Rancid. Their style was ska punk, with pretty big emphasis on punk. 
They came together in 1989, formed by Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman, who'd been in the Berkeley-based ska band Operation Ivy. Operation Ivy was one of the early leaders in American ska. They mixed radical politics with jagged punk riffs and Jamaican-influenced rhythms and ignited hundreds of similar bands. They also gave birth to Rancid, whose breakthrough album dropped in August 1995 and included the hits Ruby Soho and Time Bomb. Other ska punk bands followed in their wake, including Goldfinger, also from California, as well as other bands from around the country, including Suicide Machines out of Detroit, Mustard Plug from Grand Rapids, the Blue Meanies from Illinois, and the Slackers from New York. Other musicians that weren't necessarily part of traditional ska bands incorporated the sound with success like Sugar Ray, who rose to fame with their ska pop song, Fly, in 1997. In 1998, most of these bands took part in the Ska Against Racism tour, which was organized by ska punk trailblazer Mike Park. He was the founder of the wacky and influential group Skankin' Pickle, which I have to say wins prize for best third-wave band name. Ken Partridge explains in his book, Hell of a Hat, as Ska's popularity grew, Park, who was Asian, felt like the music was losing its connection to two-tones activist roots. But with skanking, beer-guzzling audiences coming out for the Ska Against Racism tour, some wondered if it was the right place to be teaching people about racial tolerance. But Ken believes the connection made sense because of Ska's history. Even when there weren't a lot of Black people at the shows or in the bands, You know, ska was kind of notable for thinking a lot about racism. And, you know, because of this whole history of two-tone, where the music was, you know, very uh, vocally anti-racist, that sort of carried over to third wave ska. Even if the crowds weren't as as, uh, diverse, you still had bands that had songs about racism. During the 38 City Tour, groups like Anti-Racist Action, Artists for a Hate-Free America, and the Museum of Tolerance set up information booths and sign-up sheets at each show. The tour also helped raise about $23,000 for anti-racist charities. By 1997, Third Wave Ska had infiltrated almost every aspect of pop culture. You could hear it on movie soundtracks like Clueless and 10 Things I Hate About You, which featured Save Ferris, and on video games like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. The peak came in June 1997, when MTV aired a two-hour block of programming devoted entirely to ska videos, hosted by the one and only Carson Daly. This is MTV Scotterday. I'm Carson. Now listen, a lot of you know what ska sounds like, but you may not be sure where the name originated. Ska comes from, of course, Jamaica, and it was a word that uh, they used to describe the sound a guitar would make. Now stick around, we talked a little bit earlier Daly is dressed in a black suit and hat, skinny tie and sunglasses. The set is an abandoned water park that MTV dubbed Motel California, with dozens of young people awkwardly dancing to ska music in the background. For a lot of fans of ska music, it was a bit of a joke. They had been skanking along with their favorite bands for years, and now suddenly MTV was on board? But Ken Partridge looks at it a little differently. I actually thought it was kind of cool because... You know, back in those days, if you wanted to see a video by The Specials or Madness or uh, you know, Fishbone, 
it was it was kind of impossible. I mean, there was like dial-up internet, so it's you know, there was no YouTube, there was no way to really see this stuff. So, I mean, yeah, was it kind of corny? Absolutely, but it was it was really cool to see some of these videos on on, on MTV. And as a fan of the music, I was I was just kind of happy that there were you know more people learning about it. As third wave ska was infiltrating North America, there was another upbeat retro musical genre that was also making a resurgence in a big, big way. Swing. It's completely different from ska. But Ken says there are a few reasons the two have been conflated in our collective memories. Well, I think on a, on a, on a purely superficial kind of level, there was a connection because it was a lot of guys, uh, you know, playing saxophones and uh, trombones, uh, you know, wearing uh, suits and, you know, getting out to all, alternative radio. So I think just, you know, for kids growing up in the uh, late 90s, I think a lot of kids, you know, probably confused Scott and Swing because just, you know, the aesthetics were so similar that, and, and, you know, they were so different from, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam that, okay, it's like, you know, suits and saxophones, that's all one thing. The original Swing era was born in the 1930s when Benny Goodman premiered the sound of up-tempo hot jazz arrangements at the Palomar Ballroom in Hollywood. Dancers went wild for the sound. Other musicians joined Goodman, including names you have no doubt heard of, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and Glenn Miller. And swing music exploded in popularity. Swing bands tended to be bigger and more crowded than other jazz bands. And the music, with its strong rhythms, led to some pretty creative dance moves. Lots of spins, lifts, and flips. A style that became known as swing dance. The feel-good dance music and dance craze began a slow decline during World War II and had mostly petered out by 1947. The vinyl records of jazz greats gathered dust at the back of your grandparents' stereo cabinet, only coming out after dinner on Sunday night or at special occasions. Then, in the 1980s, the retro swing rebirth began with bands like Royal Crown Review and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Royal Crown Review formed in L.A. in 1989 and hung out at King King, a club for California punks that was the epicenter of the L.A. retro scene. The initial lineup of Royal Crown Review included siblings Adam and Mark Stern, who earlier founded the influential SoCal punk band Youth Brigade. Fronted by Eddie Nichols, a charming tough guy, the band developed a loyal following in L.A. and San Francisco. Fans of this neo-swing revival were often totally committed to the lifestyle, driving old cars, dressing in retro clothes like zoot suits, and using lots of 1930s swing slang like Hepcat, Daddy-O, and Doll. The movement's most famous venue was the Derby, a 1940s-style club with velvet curtain booths in Los Angeles. Every Wednesday night for two years, from 1993 to 1995, the Royal Crown Review played the Derby and became the It Band of L.A. According to Ken Partridge's book, Hell of a Hat, lots of celebrities came to check them out, including Bruce Springsteen, Quincy Jones, and the cast of Friends, which couldn't be a more 90s factoid. They eventually caught the attention of Hollywood, landing a role in the 1994 Jim Carrey film The Mask, performing this song. Hey, what you 
They also signed a major record deal with Warner Brothers and soon were too busy to maintain their residency at the Derby. Luckily, another California retro swing band stepped in to fill their wingtip shoes. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy was loud and aggressive, almost punk rock swing. And like Royal Crown Review, developed a big enough following to land a role in a Hollywood movie. If you go back and watch the 1996 film Swingers, you can see them perform You and Me and the Bottle Make Three, along with Go Daddy O. The movie Swingers, incidentally, was written and directed by a young John Favreau, who was a regular at the Derby Club when Swing was all the rage. And even though the movie was a flop in theaters, it gained a pretty good second life on VHS and remains popular to this day. Royal Crown Review and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy went on to make some great albums. They joined the Warp Tour and had legions of fans, but they were never able to cross over to pop radio. The retro swing revival seemed destined to remain outside the mainstream. That is until March 1997, when a band with the unfortunate name of Cherry Pop and Daddies released their soon-to-be hit, Zoot Suit Riots. The Cherry Pop and Daddies formed in Oregon in 1989 and started off playing a mix of ska, funk, and punk. When they added a few swing songs to their repertoire, fans loved it. So that's what they decided to focus on. And they released a swing compilation album that included the song Zoot Suit Riot. Ken Partridge says the song was written by the band's frontman, Steve Perry. Yeah, Steve Perry really saw that song as sort of a, you know, rallying cry for, uh, you know, the swing kids out there who were sort of into this kind of music. Um, the Azuzu Suit Riots uh, themselves were this really um, sort of, a, they were this really um, horrific, you know, they were these uh, race riots in uh, you know, the early 40s in uh, Los Angeles. You know, young uh, Latinos were, you know, beaten up by these uh, U.S. naval, you know, guys on uh, shore leave, basically. So, you know, the song kind of uses that as kind of like a metaphor, I guess, for the kind of marginalized people who are part of this, you know, neo-swing subculture. Zoot Suit Riot peaked at number 17 on the Billboard 200 in July 1998, and Cherry Pop and Daddies joined the Warp Tour as headliners in the summer of 98. Surprisingly, though, Swing's mainstream breakthrough didn't happen because of the Cherry Pop and Daddies. Instead, it came thanks to a TV commercial for khakis that hit the airwaves in 1998. Baby, baby, it looks like it's gonna hail. Set to the Louis Prima song Jump, Jive, and Whale, the Gap Swing commercial was a blur of khaki wearing men and women. Yeah, it's all these like young dancers and they're kind of flying through the air. And they use that kind of special effect from uh, the Matrix, the, uh, the bullet time thing where the you know, camera sort of stops and then rotates. And uh, so that was a big part of the commercials appeal, too. But yeah, I mean, I feel like overnight you just saw people signing up for, you know, for swing classes and it just kind of blew up from there. 
I cannot deny that this commercial got me hook, line, and sinker. Not only did I run out and buy Gap khakis, I got a couple of swing compilation CDs that stayed on repeat for the rest of the year. I didn't sign up for swing lessons, but I seriously thought about it. At almost the same time the Gap commercial was released, Brian Setzer, formerly of the 80s rockabilly group The Stray Cats, was putting the finishing touches on the album Dirty Boogie for his latest project called the Brian Setzer Orchestra, which was a predominantly swing and jump blues and jazz band. Ken Partridge says at the last minute, Setzer went back into the studio and cut a version of the Louis Prima song from the Gap commercial. I think he had been kind of uh, reluctant I think it was, um, you know, somebody at his uh, record label was, you know, sort of saying, like, you should do the song. And um, there's some interview where he, you know, talks about being kind of reluctant, but then he, you know, worked up in a, he's, he sort of worked up his own arrangement of it, you know, put in a, a guitar solo and really made it, you know, kind of rock in his uh, signature way. And I think he really made the song his own. And, but yeah, that summer it came out and was just a massive hit. I think it just, on the back of that commercial, there was kind of no stopping that song. Brian Setzer's version of Jump, Jive, and Whale reached number 23 on the top 40, and the album Dirty Boogie peaked at number 9 on the Billboard 200. According to Ken Partridge, the retro swing revival kind of fizzled out after reaching its peak in the summer of 98. He says a swing band in the year 2000 was about as cool as a hair metal group in 1991. As for 90s ska music, it too went from super cool to a punchline almost overnight. Suddenly, the Hawaiian shirts and wallet chains attached to oversized shorts worn by 90s ska bands like Real Big Fish had overstayed their welcome. And it was time to move on. But Ken and many others maintain that both ska and swing shouldn't be written off as just another fad. He says these genres weren't invented by Gap marketers or executives at MTV and major record labels. They grew out of legit underground subcultures and became a welcome home for a cross-section of people who maybe didn't feel they belonged anywhere else. Scott, in particular, was kind of like welcoming to the misfits and like the weirdos who, you know, wanted to wear suits and uh, dance around. And, you know, because Scott was so... I, I think I think one thing that makes, you know, Scott so interesting is that it's uh, very adaptable. Um, um, if you're sort of willing to call like any kind of music that has the offbeat to it uh, a ska, then you can kind of like mix ska with almost anything. You can mix it with metal or punk or so. You know, it it uh, wasn't uncommon at uh, you know ska shows back in the day to see you know punk rockers and like metal kids. And I would say that for as much as there was as there was kind of like a uniform and you know the rude boy look and there was you know mods and like skinheads and all these different subcultures that kind of fell into it it was also just kind of pretty welcoming to you know regular old kids who just wanted to come out and have a good time and while retro swing doesn't appear to be making a comeback anytime soon ska is still around in fact it never totally disappeared it just went back underground and in recent years has actually been thriving in cultural epicenters like los angeles and mexico where bands like the female-fronted Interrupters have been creating a fourth wave. Amy Allen, lead singer for the Interrupters, says ska never went away. It just dips in and out of the mainstream. 
Thanks for joining me for this look back at two of the 90s most surprising musical movements. And thanks to Ken Partridge for sharing his knowledge and expertise about the era. His book, Hell of a Hat, which has just been released, was an immense help in writing this episode. It is a really fun, great book to read. I recommend it highly. I'll put information in the show notes about Hell of a Hat in case you want to read more about the rise of 90s ska and swing. If you've got an idea for a show, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also email me anytime at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by the ultimate hepcat, Rob Johnston. See you next time for more history of the 90s. 